0: Text for this morning is Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. So, between the reading that we just uh, had from Acts 4 and then up to this time, uh, what we just recognize is that the church has been growing steadily um, in Jerusalem. The apostles are preaching and performing many signs and wonders and the fellowship of believers is flourishing to a great degree. So we'll start reading at Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, "Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people." Then the captain went with the then the captain with the officers went after him judas the galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him he too perished and all who followed him were scattered so in the present case i tell you keep away from these men and let them alone for if this for if this plan or this undertaking is of man it will fail but if it is of god you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. After the sermon, we'll respond to the preaching of the gospel with, Saul, with hymn 41. Hymn 41 after the sermon. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the work of God can never be stopped. This is an observation that Gamaliel, the teacher of the law, makes in our text. Anything that we would see happening in history would either be a human invention or it is the work of God. Now we know that God's providence is at work even in these various human inventions, but it's a question of whether it's for God or against God. So on the one hand, if it's a human invention, then we know that eventually it will run its course and it will come to nothing. It'll lose steam and people will move on to something else and it will definitely show itself for what it is. It's an empty empty pursuit. But if it is God's work, then there's no stopping it. It's the most powerful and important thing that one could encounter. It's something that everybody will have to reckon with at some point and bring themselves into conformity with. If you oppose it, it means that you oppose God and that never ends well. So this is the question that raises itself in our text. This is the question that has persisted throughout all of history about Jesus Christ since he walked this earth. Is this real? Is Christianity real? Is Christianity legit? Or is it a human invention, like so many would profess? Is this actually the work of God? or And and? Is this something that we should all believe and bring ourselves into conformity with? If this is a human invention, well then someday, Christianity is going to stop having an effect on the world. But if this is the work of God, if it's true that Jesus is the Son of God, if it's true the testimony that God raised him from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, that, that he was a miracle worker sent from God, then the reality is that nobody can adopt a neutral position to this. Some might think that there is an option of sort of, you know, take it or leave it. This works for you, but, you know, I'm not really going to have anything to do with it. You know, that's not true either we believe and live our lives in Jesus Christ made alive by his spirit either we be his disciples or we stand opposed there's no third neutral option so today we here we're reminded that God's work in Jesus Christ cannot be stopped and so we'll see two aspects of this that first opposition comes to nothing, and secondly, that the name of Jesus increases. So first, we'll see that opposition to the name of Jesus Christ comes to nothing. In our text, we see that the apostles of Jesus, they have their second encounter with the Jewish leaders. We reminded ourselves of the, of the first encounter uh, in our reading from chapter 4. So at that time, the rulers, they thought that they were nipping this problem in the bud. They thought that they were taking care of this problem that was raising itself in Jerusalem, this new religious movement. They had arrested Peter and John. They had held them overnight, and then they questioned them the next day. And so that's similar to what they wanted to do in our text. And at that time, Peter preaches the gospel to them. He testifies to who Jesus is. He says there, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He's showing them proof of the power of Jesus Christ. And the leaders had recognized the power of this. They recognized the marvelous amazing nature of the apostles ministry they were amazed at the boldness that these uneducated men had and they're hearing the truth they're hearing the gospel but they reject it and they decide that they're going to take a stand against it they're going to put a stop to this thing in chapter 4 verse 17 we see that They took action in order to stop this thing from spreading. In order to keep this thing from spreading anymore among the people, they're going to warn these men to stop. That's the motivation here, in order to stop it from spreading. They want to put an end to this, be done with it, and move on to something else. Verse 21, they pile on the threats, you better stop this, you may not speak in this name. And what's the result of that opposition? Well, the believers meet together and they lay it before God. They pray for the boldness to continue. And this boldness is definitely granted. They keep spreading the word, teaching about Christ. They meet every day in the temple courts And teach everyone who would hear. They heal the sick. They perform signs. And the church grows. The church flourishes. Crowds are coming even from neighboring villages. This isn't stopping. Despite the efforts of the leaders to prevent that very thing. So now we have in our text today the second round of opposition. So we read there that the high priest and all his associates, they're filled with jealousy. That's in verse 17. <clears throat> now, this might not be the the, the sort of jealousy that, that we would be familiar with. We have to recognize that maybe jealousy isn't used in the very same way that we use the word jealousy. It could be that It could be that they're envious of the success of the apostles, they're envious of the favor that they enjoy among all the people, but it could also just mean plainly zeal. That's actually the Greek word that is used here for jealousy, zealos. They're filled with with zeal, a, a deep and a fiery concern about the matter. They believe this is very dangerous teaching. And they want to put a stop to it. And we can also see later that they are also very concerned about their own reputation here. The fact that according to the apostles, they are guilty of shedding innocent blood. This is not good for their reputation one bit. And so again, they arrest the apostles. They, they lock them up and they plan to keep them locked up until morning when they can meet and decide what they're going to do about this. And again... What's the purpose of this? What are they doing? Well, they want to cut this down. They want this movement stopped to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people. Well, we see what happens to that. Well, in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord opens the doors of the jail. He lets the apostles out. He tells them to go back into the temple and keep on teaching. Keep on teaching. This is actually kind of funny when we imagine the reaction of the leaders to this discovery that they're not there anymore. The next morning, they send somebody to the jail, you know, go fetch the prisoners. And they're told, "Um, you know, these prisoners are gone. The jail is still locked up, the guards are still posted at the doors and nobody really knows how this happened. They escaped. How embarrassing. How embarrassing. And then someone runs in and points. Those men, they're right over there. They're here in the temple. They escape from prison, but they don't make a break for it. They don't try to escape from, from punishment. They don't try to be free of opposition. They go right back to the temple to teach. Complete disregard for these warnings, these threats that were being breathed out against them. They're not trying to hide what they're doing. You imagine these leaders just sort of throw up their hands like, boy, these guys don't really take us seriously at all, do they? So they bring them in really carefully, sort of hush-hush, quietly. They're afraid that if they make a big scene about this, the people are actually going to stone them. And that's actually a remarkable thing to, to recognize here. For the most powerful and respected people in the community to recognize that they are losing that respect of the people, that the people might actually attack them with violence if they mistreat these apostles, that's how highly the apostles are regarded now. That's amazing. And so they question them. And as they're doing this, they show their cards. They tip their hand. They reveal what they are upset about. So number one, they're, they're upset about the content of the teaching. That's true. But number two they're also recognizing the implication of that truth. If Jesus really is the Messiah, if it's true that he was blameless of all of the things that the leaders had accused him of, then they are guilty of murdering an innocent man. And what's more, they're guilty of crucifying the anointed Son of God, the Messiah. This is what they say in verse 28. You are, by your teaching, you are making us guilty of this man's blood. They still won't believe it, but they don't like that other people are believing this about them. This is not good for them if they want to stay in the favor of the people. But this is the truth. It's the truth. And again, the apostles take this opportunity to preach this, to preach the truth, to exalt the name of Jesus among them. They say to them, the God of our fathers raised him from the dead. Our God, we have the same God. We're worshiping the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you have to recognize this. You killed him. You hanged him on a tree, on the cross. You're guilty of crucifying him. But the one who received that curse, who was cursed by God because of us, God has exalted him. He sits at God's right hand now. Now, listen to this. God has exalted him as Prince and Savior for this reason. This is what the apostles tell them in order to give repentance and forgiveness to Israel. They're saying this is why all of this happened, in order to give you repentance in order to give you, the leaders of Israel even, forgiveness. This is boldness, that they had the boldness to say this to the leaders. Even while they're detained, even while they're threatened with prison and threatened with even worse than imprisonment, they keep on preaching because this is so, so great a message They preach to the very ones who murdered Christ. They give the message of comfort to their own persecutors. God is giving forgiveness even to you. Accept it, acknowledge Christ as Lord. Who can be saved? Who did Christ come to save? This message is even being preached to the very ones who murdered Christ. You can be saved even if you're the worst of sinners. And that's news that should touch our hearts. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 16. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. If Paul, if Paul, the one who murdered the followers of Christ, Paul who murdered those who belonged to Christ, those for whom Christ died. Remember, remember what Jesus says about those who belong to him. Whatever you did to the least of these who belong to me, you did to me. If you fed one of these who belongs to me, you fed me. If you persecuted the one who belongs to me, you persecuted me. And This is, this is what Paul did. If Paul can be shown mercy, then none of you is beyond the reach of the grace of God. Remember that. None of you is beyond the reach of the grace of God. It's true that the leaders of Israel are the ones who arrested him and forced him onto the cross and and, and nailed him to it. But it was our sins that held him there. He was there because of us. He was crucified for us. We crucified him. We did. But the worst of sinners can receive grace. It's for all who believe in him. This is the message of the apostles. They don't stop preaching. And once again, the apostles point out that the leaders are guilty of this murder, and the reaction, well, isn't very surprising. They're not cut to the heart with repentance, but they're filled with, with absolute fury to the point of hauling the apostles out and, and executing them in the street. How furious do you have to be to actually grab somebody and drag them into the street and kill them on the spot? Well, Gamaliel speaks truth here. He says, hold on a minute. Stop, just wait. And he gives two examples of uprisings that in some way were human-centered. And he points out that You know what? These movements came to absolutely nothing. The leader was killed, the people were scattered, and everybody just moved on. And here in this case, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. The leader is killed. Now let's just see if the the followers are scattered and what happens. If this movement is like one of the others, then that's what will happen. This will come to nothing. And it's ironic here that he is speaking the truth and he's meaning to comment on the apostles' work. That if there is a man-made movement, that it's going to come to nothing. But he's also inadvertently commenting on the opposition that he and his associates are leveling at the apostles'. If it's man-centered, it will come to nothing. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop it. If you're opposed to it and you try to stop it, then guess what? You will be standing directly in opposition to God, in opposition to his work, and you do not want to be in that position. It's possible that maybe even some of them are beginning to realize that their efforts to stop the gospel are coming to nothing. The church is growing despite their goal of keeping this thing from spreading. So that's the big question for them at that time. Who is, who is this Jesus? You know, that's a question that was asked throughout Jesus' entire ministry. Who in the world is this? And what is the Christian church? Is it a human invention or is it the work of God? Well, we believe wholeheartedly that this is the work of God and that it will continue. And that's our second point. The name of Jesus increases. So let's move back to the beginning of our text just for a moment. When the angel broke the apostles out of prison, he he gave them very direct instructions what they were supposed to do with this new freedom. Verse 20 says, go and stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. They're being broken out of prison because the name of Jesus must be proclaimed. Because this message will not be stopped. Tell the people what they need to hear. That the way of Christ is the way of true life. This is what Peter recognized and confessed in John 6. In John 6, Jesus uh, was was being followed by a a multitude of disciples, and many of them, at a certain point, abandoned him because they didn't really like where this was going. He was teaching that he was heading to the cross, that he was going to be crucified and in three days be raised from the dead. Well, that wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted. A bunch of disciples leave, and Jesus asks the twelve, are you leaving too? What does Peter respond to that? Are you leaving too? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where on earth would we go? You have the words of eternal life. This isn't just handy information for a pleasant life on earth. This isn't like John Tesh Intelligence for your life. Maybe some of you are familiar with that radio program. This isn't just one of the many possible ways to live. This is the only way that anyone can truly live. It's sad that there are so many who don't recognize this. People would say that Christianity is one of you know the the, the many options out there for maybe trying to have a more fulfilled life, a way to inject some kind of meaning into your life. And you can do this in so many different ways. And, you know, you go to church and that's fine for you, but I'm going to stay over here and, and do my own thing. The reality, the truth, the fact of the matter is that a life without Christ is not life. It's not a life at all. It's just a slow slow dying. The apostles have to preach, teach all the words of this new life, and this is how God gathers his people. It's through the proclamation of Jesus' name. This is done with boldness, with absolute conviction, and this is what the Jewish leaders are, are marveling about. They're... How, how, can, how can these men be so effective? How can they be so successful? How can they not be backing down with the kinds of threats that we're, that we're issuing against them? But the leaders accept Gamaliel's advice. Go, okay, we'll back off a little bit. They don't murder the apostles, but they're still pretty furious, and so they, they flog them. It says uh, that they, they beat them or they flogged them. And that's actually a really severe, severe torture. So if you're flogged, you're basically given 40 lashes with a whip. Well, you're really probably only given 39. That was, the, that was the practice. They would beat you 39 times because legally they could only give you 40. And they would count to 39 just in case they accidentally gave you one extra, and they wouldn't want to be in violation of that law. But that, people could die from, from just being flogged. It was so traumatic, and it would send you into shock. But even with that sort of discouragement, they will not be discouraged. And they will not be persuaded to stop preaching, because God himself has filled them with the courage and the boldness to continue. His work won't be stopped. It will not be stopped. The church will continue. Nothing will prevail against the church because God will preserve her until the return of the Lord. That is a fact. We have to recognize that what we see in Acts, Jesus ascends into heaven He charges his apostles to be his witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in all of Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. This is still happening now today. What we're experiencing this morning as the church receiving the word, the message of life, this has been going on Since this time, it has never stopped and it will never stop. Every persecution, every opposition that would ever raise itself against the anointed and against his people, it will come to nothing, just as Gamaliel said. (coughs) You know, today... I think there are a lot of us that, are, that have deep concerns about the effect that our current situation might have on the churches. We're concerned that because our life and our life of worship, our congregational life has been so disrupted that people have been kept from regular church life to such a degree that a lot of us are just sort of being okay with it, that the church is being greatly damaged because of all of this. But there's a really important thing that we have to remember, and that is that the bride of Christ is not damaged by persecution or by opposition or any other hardship that she faces. If a persecution arises or some other hardship, whatever it is, as it has many, many times in history, if that hardship arises and people leave the church because of it, well, then what does that mean? What conclusion can be drawn from that? That God has lost some battle? That God's purposes are somehow derailed by this? No, of course not. God sends hardship for his people to test the hearts of his people, to refine us. If the church is persecuted and we buckle under the pressure and we deny Christ and we walk away, or if we drift away from the church because of some other pressures that are around us, well, then what does that mean? Well, it only means that the hardship has exposed what was truly in our hearts. The hardship has exposed where our hearts truly were. It's exposed what we actually cared about the most. It's easy to be hypocrites during those easy times, but then a hardship exposes that. It exposes that we were more attached to the earth than to the kingdom of heaven. But for those who truly love Christ, for those whose hearts really are devoted to Him and to each other, well then what does hardship do? It causes us to trust in God, our Father, all the more. We know that He is busy through all of this. He's caring for us and preserving us through all of this. He is teaching us something through all of this we can rejoice in this hardship and and we will find ourselves more strongly united to each other and more convicted of God's care for us the apostles were persecuted severely they were threatened and they were whipped but what was their reaction the reaction was complete joy They rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer disgrace for the sake of Christ, and the gospel was advanced. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. God has made us worthy to suffer burdens as well. We bear them for the sake of Christ. Perhaps at this time we don't suffer outright persecutions but the sufferings that we bear we bear them as a refinement of our faith and just as God gives boldness to his apostles to continue so too he gives strength by his holy spirit for his people to continue not just dealing with it and not just sort of getting through it but continuing in joy look at what we have here this morning We are the church in the middle of some hardship, and the fact that we are a church, this is not our invention, but this is God's own work, we're convinced of that, and this will never be stopped. We can trust that after we've gone through this season of trial, the church endures and the church is strengthened. Amen.